Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, where Jesus taught us about how to exercise our faith. Jesus said, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You know, anything that Jesus teaches us is true. Amen? You don't have to question it. You don't have to figure it out whether, you know, did he tell me the right thing or did he make a mistake? No. He said, if you have faith like a mustard seed and you speak to the mountain, tell it to move. It will move and nothing will be impossible to you. No questions asked. This is the teacher speaking. Jesus, the teacher, the, the one who is the truth speaking. He's giving us the truth. So we must embrace that and begin to apply it in our lives. Jesus taught us, if you have faith in your heart, you speak to your mountain. Command the mountain to move and it will move. So go ahead and do it. Apply it in your life. Use it in your life. Amen. Whatever the mountain is, it could be sickness, some obstacle, some hindrance, some challenge, some struggle. Speak to the mountain. That's what he taught us to do. Amen. And that's why we encourage ourselves every Sunday morning by standing up and making our declaration. Let's do that right now. I want you to stand up to your feet and, and hold your Bible in your hand and say this. These are faith words, words of faith that, that, uh, that we release because we, we believe this. And so we speak this out loud. Say this together. This is God's word. This is God speaking to me. I am who God says I am. I can do what God says I can do. I will become everything God has promised. I am saved, healed, delivered, redeemed. I am blessed, victorious, prosperous, triumphant. I'm a minister of God, a servant of Christ, and a channel of His blessing to many people. I receive His word. I believe His word. And I live by His word. Christ is my master. And to him, I am in absolute surrender in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles. And you know where we're going. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. It's our foundation text for this entire series that we've been doing over the last several Sundays, talking about seven spices so let's just go back to that passage and read it again in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, where we are looking at seven spices or seven elements or seven ingredients that Peter says we must add to our faith. And we're examining each one of them one by one, trying to understand them and uh, uh, put them into our lives. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, verse 5 begins, Peter says, but also for this very reason, Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So virtue, we studied that as good character or strong character, strength of character. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue, add knowledge. We looked at that as spiritual understanding, having a renewed mind. Verse 6, to knowledge, self-control or discipline or temperance. And then to self-control, perseverance or endurance. We studied that last Sunday. Having endurance, 
to your Christian life, to your walk with God, steadfastness, the ability to persevere. And then he says, to perseverance, godliness. And that's what we're going to be studying this morning, godliness. But let's complete the passage, verse 7. To godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, if you have these seven ingredients in abundance and good measure in your life, you will not be barren. Rather, you will be productive. You will be fruitful in your Christian life. You will see results. Things happening because of and as a result of your walk with God. Fruitfulness in the Christian life is connected or dependent on having these seven ingredients in our lives. Verse 9, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. If you do not add these seven ingredients, he's saying, then it's like being short-sighted. You're not able to look ahead, look into the future. You're looking at the temporal rather than the eternal. You're, not, you're even to the point of being blinded, not able to see spiritual realities. So it's so important to have these in our lives. And he says, you forget that you were cleansed from your old sins. There's a tendency to go back to the old way of living. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make a call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. She says, if you add these ingredients to your faith, it's going to bring stability and strength in your Christian life. You're not going to fall. You're going to faint. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to talk about the fifth ingredient that he lists there for us, which is godliness. Different um, Bible translations render this word slightly differently. The Message Bible talks about as reverent wonder, or the Bible in basic English uses the word, the fear of the Lord. Some other versions talk about piety, purity, holiness. For us, they're all synonymous. And so we just use one word, purity. Peter is saying, add to your faith, purity, godliness, holiness. And you need this in your walk with God to be fruitful and to be strong and stable in God. Let's also look at some other scriptures that Peter writes about godliness or holiness. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I just want to refer to them very quickly. Peter writes about holiness. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. For if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to everyone's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So he's saying, listen, guys, God who called us is holy. So he says, be holy, even as God is holy. God is a holy God, the God that we are following the God that we say we are believing in. The God that we say we are having faith in. He is a holy God. And God wants that to become a part of our lives. He says, be holy for I am holy. It's a call to holiness. And then he says, I want you to conduct yourself, your life here on earth, in this reverence, in this godly reverence, in holiness and in fear. 
stay here in fear. In chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Stay away from fleshly lusts. They fight against your own soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, Glorify God in the day of visitation. He says, look guys, we're just strangers and pilgrims. We're just on a journey. We're just here passing through. So he says, I want you to stay away from fleshly lust because they fight against your soul. Uh, they wage a war against your soul. So stay away from these things. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Peter writes, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That through these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What Peter is saying here in verses 3 and 4 of Second Peter chapter 1 is this. He says, you know, God has called us. He's, he's called us to... To this life of godliness. And he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has already given you everything you need to live a life of godliness. That's what he says in verse 3. Who has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then he points us to these exceeding great and precious promises in verse 4. He says, look, God's given us these precious promises. By these, we can actually partake of the divine nature. We can be partners of God's divine nature, express that nature here on earth, and escape the corruption, the moral decline, the moral decay that's in the world because of lust. What you and I must understand as believers that in this call to holy living, in this call to purity, in this call to holiness, God has given us all things. That we need for a life of godliness. And that he has invited us. He's enabled us to partake of his divine nature. So that we can actually escape the corruption. That's the moral decay that's in the world. We don't have to partake of the moral decay that's in the world. We can partake of the divine nature that comes from God. Amen. As a believer. Understand. That God has given you everything you need. To live a godly life. To a life of godliness. He's given us all things. And uh, let's just read one more passage that Peter writes about holiness in Second Peter chapter 3. And then we will uh, spend some time meditating on this subject. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and holiness? So Peter, towards the end of his epistle, he's saying, you know, guys, listen, the time's coming when everything is just going to be melted away. It's going to be taken out. It's going to be gone. He says, since you know this, what kind of people you and I ought to be in conducting our life here on earth in godliness and holy fear. One day, all of this will be gone. And because we know that, let's live a life of holiness and purity. So, 
the call to holiness, the call to a life of purity is very clear. God is holy, you be holy. God says you're just a pilgrim, you're just passing through this life, so keep your life pure and holy. It's just a short time. And God says, I've given you everything you need to live a life of holiness and purity. I want you to be a partaker of my divine nature rather than become a partner in the corruption that's in the world. And also, you know, the end of the story. Everything is going to be melted away. It's going to be gone. And he who does the will of God is going to abide forever. Amen? So let's begin now, as we talk about purity, adding purity to our lives, let's first of all begin by saying what purity is not. Or what godliness is not. Because the moment we talk about godliness, we talk about purity, we talk about holy living, immediately our religious thinking kicks in and we, we, we kind of run into several different you know, ideas on what godliness, on what we think godliness is. So let's clear them out. First of all, godliness or purity does not mean we live in isolation. right? It does not mean I disconnect from everybody in the world. In order to be holy and pure, I need to disappear into some monastery or go away to the Himalayas. That is not holiness. Not the kind of holiness God is calling us to. He wants us to be in the world, but not be off it. Another thing that godliness or purity or holiness is not. It is not an attitude of, you know, I am more religious than you. That's why I try to be better than you. That's not holiness. God hasn't called us to have this attitude of, you know, I am more religious than somebody else, and that's why I, I am trying to be holy. It's not a holier-than-thou attitude. And godliness, purity is also not a list of do's and don'ts. You know, here's your 10 things you can do, and here are 101 things and growing things you cannot do. That's not purity. That's not holiness, as the Bible teaches us. What I want us to understand very simply is this, that holiness or purity is the outward working of an inward change. Holiness, purity, what is it? It's an outward working of an inward change. Can you all say that with me? It's an outward working of an inward change. That's what holiness or purity is. God has transformed you radically on the inside. You are a new creation. You are born of God. That means you've got the life and the nature of God in your spirit. And what is holiness? It's the outworking of that inward transformation that has taken place. You have been born from a bow. The life and the nature of God is in you. You are a partaker of the Zoe kind of life, the God kind of life. It's in you. And now you're allowing that life to begin to affect the realm of your thoughts, your thinking, your mind, your soul. And you're allowing that inner life to touch the realm of your body, your desires, your words, and your actions. And that is a life of purity. It's a life of holiness. Paul wrote it like this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24. I'll just quote it to you. He says, put off in verse, 20, verse 23. He says, put off. The former, uh, concerning a former conversation, the old man. Then he says, verse 24, Ephesians 4, 24. Put on the new man. Somebody came and said, this is a new shirt. And I said, no, 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 I've worn it so many times. So he's like, put on the new man. And he put on something new, it gets people's attention. Put on the new man. And what does he tell us about the new man? See, the new man is who you are on the inside. 
right? So say this with me. I'm a new man on the inside. So it's like Intel inside. It's like new man inside. Okay. He says, now put on the new man. And he tells us something about the new man. This new man, verse 24, is created in the image of God. It's created in the likeness of God in righteousness and true holiness. Do you know that the man that you are, or the woman, there's no gender here, but the person that you are on the inside is created in the image of God, is an exact replica, a copy, a a resemblance of God in righteousness and holiness. And that's who you are on the inside. Amen? And so now, what is holiness? It's putting on this new man. It's loving this inner person that you really are, to affect the realm of your thinking and your do- actions and speaking. And, and that's holiness. It's, that's living a life of purity. Amen? And God is saying, that's all I want you to do. I've made you a partaker of the divine nature. I've given you exceeding great and precious promises. I've given you the capacity for a life of godliness. Now put it on. I love that to permeate you, your mind and your body. So this morning... While we all understand that holiness, purity, is to live up this God kind of life here in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We understand that it's very clear. But then we also realize there are challenges. It's not easy to live a life of holiness, purity. It's not easy. And so I want to spend much of the time here this morning addressing two challenges to a life of purity, to a life of holiness. And I know we can sit down and enumerate a list of many other things. But I just want to address two things this morning. One is temptations. It's a major hurdle, a major obstacle, a major challenge, a major hindrance that keeps many of us from really living out a life of purity and holiness. And secondly, it's conformance. We'll talk about these two things. Temptations and conformance. Challenges to a life of purity. Let's deal with the very first one and our battle for purity. How do we overcome temptations? How do we overcome temptations? Now, what is temptation? Really just an inducement to do something wrong. It's an invitation to do something wrong. Something that's contrary to God. The Greek word for temptations that's often seen is is not, not necessarily, it's not always it doesn't always mean an inducement to do something wrong. It also means something that challenges your faith. The word temptation is synonymous to our English word of testing, trial. So when you find the word temptation, you can also read it as test, trial. It's the same words. That's translated temptation in some places, trials in other places. It's the same words. Anything that challenges your walk with God. It could be an inducement to sin. It could be a challenge to your faith and what you believe. But this morning, when you're talking about temptation, we're talking about in the context of an inducement to sin, to do something that's wrong before God. And that's a major challenge for all of us as we attempt, as we strive to live a life of holiness and purity. Now, let's understand something about temptation. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, and it'll be good for us to turn there and read it, to understand the The process of temptation. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. James says, Let no man say, when I am tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, neither does he tempt anyone. Verse 14, But every man is tempted 
when he's drawn by his own desire. Every man is tempted when he how? When he's drawn by his own desire and enticed. And verse 15. And when desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin brings death. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So James is telling us something. He's saying, listen guys, when, when you're being tempted, don't blame it on God. Don't say God is tempting me. Because God cannot be tempted, neither does he tempt anybody. He doesn't, he's not interested in inducing anybody to go to sin and do something wrong. But really, he says, there, here's the root of the problem. When anybody is tempted, he's being tempted because of his own desires. And desire entices. Desire weakens your will. When the voice of desire becomes louder than the strength of your will, you normally tend to give in. So desire entices. And when desire is conceived, that means you've given in to the desire, that's when you, he says, you have sinned. When desire is conceived, it brings forth sin. All of us have wrong desires in our mind and in our body. But the presence of that desire doesn't mean you've sinned. It's there. But when that desire is parked, then it can become so loud that it weakens our will to say no. And only when we have yielded to that desire have we sinned. Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 39 is just a great example of a man who refused to sin in the face of temptation. You know the story of Joseph, how he was brought into Potiphar's house after being sold as a slave by his brothers. He comes to Potiphar's house and, you know, it's interesting to know how God perceives, and this is a sidetrack. I'm just going off the main message. I'll come back to the main message. But it's interesting to know how God perceives success. Because if you and I looked at Joseph, we would say, man, he's in bad shape. Why? He's been sold as a slave. He has to work as a servant, but as in his father's house, he was treated like a prince. But you know how God perceived that? Genesis chapter 39, verse 2 and 3, it says, And God was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, or he was a successful man. God's view of success is very different from our view. God looked at Joseph and said, he's very successful. If you and I looked at Joseph and say, pitiful condition. The same thing happened when Joseph was thrown into prison. Later on, he was in prison. Very bad shape. And we would say, like, such a miserable guy. I mean, oh, things are really falling apart in his life. He's in prison now. God looks at that in verse 23 and he says, And Joseph was in prison. And the keeper of the prison gave him charge of everything. And God was with him. And he was a very successful man. God's view of success is very different from your view and mine. Amen? Let's get back to our message on temptation. Joseph was in part of his house. He was so good in what he was doing. Potiphar put him in charge of everything and said, I'm going golfing. Joseph, you take care of my house. You know. And so, here was Joseph put in charge of Potiphar's estate. Everything under his control. And there was Potiphar's wife who had her eye on Joseph. And the Bible says day after day, she would want to lie with Joseph. She would try to come and, and you know, induce him to sin. And it was going, it, was, it didn't happen one time, two times, three times. It was going on and on. Genesis chapter 39. And Joseph kept saying, no, 
now. What was his response? Joseph said, how could I do such a thing and sin before God? He had the fear of God in him. Amen? Doesn't matter if nobody's watching me. How could I do this thing and sin against God? Finally, it came to the point where Potiphar, you know, grabbed his coat. I don't know what coat he was wearing that day. She grabbed his coat and Joseph had to run for his life. He ran out. But then she twisted the whole thing, turned everything around and said, he tried to assault me in some way. Potiphar came home, sent him off to prison. But you know, at the end of it, God vindicated Joseph. Amen. But look at Joseph's strength, his ability to stand and say no in the face of temptation. You can do it. We can. So let's go back to understanding the process of temptation and how does it happen? Every man is tempted when he's drawn by his own desire. So the only thing Satan can do is to stimulate your desire. Are you with me? I know you're, you have a desire to sleep right now, but <laughs> I'm fighting hard against it. The only thing Satan can do is to stimulate your desire. He cannot make you sin. Some people say, no, the devil made me do it. No, the devil did not make you do it. Every man is tempted when he's drawn by his own desire. The only thing the enemy can do is to try to stimulate that desire. How does he do it? Through thoughts, imaginations, and reasonings that come into your minds. That's the way the enemy works. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4, 5, and 6, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So when it's talking about our spiritual warfare, it's dealing with what? Thoughts, imaginations, reasonings, and strongholds. So here's how the enemy works. He tries to bring in a thought into your mind. And if that thought is not taken captive, it's not cut off right there and brought into the subjection of the word of God and say, no, 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 that's a wrong thing. What happens? It becomes an imagination. A picture is worth a thousand words. And the power of imagination is so strong. So you have these imaginations now going on in your mind. And if imaginations are not cut it becomes reasoning, argument. It begins to rise up. It, like it says, an, an argument against the very knowledge of God begins to question the very thing that God has said concerning that matter. It all began as a thought. Developed into an imagination. Becomes a reasoning, an argument in your mind. So now in your mind, you begin to reason. You know, and this argument is getting louder than the word of God, the, the truth of the word, and, and begins to pull it down. And if you're not careful, it becomes a stronghold And then we are taken captive to that thing. All that Satan can do is to release thoughts and imaginations and arguments in our minds in order to stimulate our desire. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. Hebrews 4 and 14. How does Satan tempt you? He doesn't appear to you in a red suit and a black suit with horns and a pitchfork and say, Hello, my name is Mr. D. Evil. I'm here to tempt you. He doesn't do that. Jesus was tempted the same way you and I are tempted. So go back to Matthew 4 and look at Jesus being tempted. After his 40 days of fasting, he was in the wilderness. 
far away from the city of Jerusalem in the wilderness fasting and praying and seeking the Father, getting ready to be launched into ministry. And uh, the Bible says Satan comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Satan comes and attacks us at our points of weakness. What are your points of weakness? You need to be aware. Think very strategic. Think like a military commander. And I look at my own life and I say, you know, I know these are my weaknesses. For men, there are three major weaknesses. The area of sexuality, the area of um, uh, self-ego, and the area of self-sufficiency. For all men, these are three major weaknesses. All men say amen. Let's be honest, you know. (laughs) For women, there are three major areas of of weakness. One is the area of security. You want to be secure. And so the first person who throws open his arms, you fall into it. Why? You're looking for security. You don't even know. You don't bother to think, who is he? There's a need for security. Another thing, there's a need for a self-identity. And many times women struggle with that. And third, an area of need for self-esteem, affirmation, and so on. Three areas. All women say amen. I don't, if you don't agree, it's okay. But, you know, you need to know and we need to know our areas of weakness. And Satan attacks us at our points of weakness. Jesus had fasted 40 days. He must have been pretty hungry. And he comes and says, hey, why don't you make these stones bread and eat it? Nobody will know. You're out in the wilderness. And Jesus answers and says, man will not live by. It is written. This is what the word says. He stopped that thought right there. You know, so having a wrong thought is not sin because Jesus never sinned. It's only when you allow that thought to progress to a place where you now yield to the desire, that's when you've sinned. The sooner you can stop the thought, the better it will be for you and me. Sometimes the thought progresses in imagination. We fight those imaginations in our mind. Sometimes it progresses into arguments. We try to argue, fight those things. You still haven't sinned. If, if it's become an imagination or an argument in your mind, you still haven't sinned. It's only when you yield to the desire that you've sinned. Are you with me so far? The next thing that that Satan did was, the Bible says, Satan took Jesus up to a high mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, this happened in the mines. There were no airline services from Puthill to Mountaintop in those days. And if you wanted to go up a mountain, it would would have taken you you days to get up there. And which mountain can you climb to see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time? None. So it happened in the mind. Satan took Jesus up. And in the mind, in the mind right now, you can travel all the way to Bombay, Mumbai, over to London, nonstop to Frankfurt, on to New York, and just go around the world in your mind. Sitting, sitting here and the pastor won't know it. You can do it in a moment of time. So that's exactly what happened to Jesus. In a moment of time. Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of And he said, you know, all this I will give you if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus, I will give you a shortcut to, your, to fulfilling your purpose. Satan's detours can be very devastating. Thank God Jesus didn't take that. So you want to get this world back? I'll give it to you. Here's a, very, here's a shortcut. Just bow down and worship me. And once again, Jesus rebuked it and said, you know, it is written, you'll worship the Lord your God and him only you will serve. The third temptation, the Bible says, Satan took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. Again, it happened in the mind. I don't think Jesus was crawling up to the temple like Superman, Spider-Man, to reach the pinnacle. 
He wasn't doing that. He was in the wilderness fasting. He was not even in Jerusalem. But in the mind, Satan painted this imagination, this picture of Jesus being up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, all you've got to do, Jesus, is jump from the highest point, come down. And here will, the Father will send all his angels to you and they'll hold you up. And all the people will say, wow, and bow down and worship you. You want the worship of people back? Here's a shortcut. The point I want to stress is it came, it happened in the area of the mind. Jesus was tempted as you and I are. So when you and I face thoughts, imaginations, arguments coming into our mind, understand that is Satan's only way to get you to sin. What he's trying to do is trying to stimulate, stir up the desires in you, in me. Our battle is in the mind to conquer those desires. Stop it there. Stop those thoughts there. Stop those imaginations. And sometimes it's a struggle, I admit. Sometimes it's a fight, yes. Sometimes it can last long, yes. There are some thoughts you can take captive. It's gone. Some things you've got to fight. You've got to fight. You've got to fight. But keep fighting. Because as long as it doesn't progress beyond the thought, reason, or imagination, you have not sinned. It's only when you yield to it that you've sinned. Amen? The second area that we have struggles with, temptations with us in, in our body. And we have to learn to crucify the deeds of our body. And by the way, I just want to recommend to you our publication, The Conquest of the Mind. It's available out there on the book table. It's free. It deals with this whole subject on training your thinking. It's a Bible study outline so you can study more on how to deal with the mind and fight the battle in your mind. The second area is the body. We must learn to, when the desires in our body come up, we must learn to say, no, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, we are living in a society and a time and an age of so much consumerism where we, you know, it's like, hey, if you feel like it, do it. Satisfy your feelings. Satisfy your desire. And that's the general mindset in our culture. But if you live like that, you'll end up yielding to so many wrong things. So the Bible teaches us that by the Holy Spirit, we must crucify the evil desires of our body in order to live. Amen. Now, as we're talking about temptation, I just want to focus in on what Jesus said, on what Jesus taught us to do in order to overcome temptation. Here's what Jesus taught us to do. So if you would go to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, you know, how do I battle temptation in my life? Here's what he would say. You'll find this in Matthew chapter 6. And I'm not saying this is the only thing he will say, but this is one of the things he would tell you and me. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 13, 9 to 13, he says, After this manner, I want you to pray. In other words, Use this format for your prayer, right? It doesn't mean we have to repeat these lines verbatim saying, you know, repeat it a thousand times. No. Pray like this. So have these areas, focus areas of prayer in your prayer life. And he tells us what to pray. He says, our Father who art in heaven, you want to repeat it after me? Hallowed be thy name. It's okay. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This is on page 23 of your... <laughs> and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory ever. The congregation may now be seated. Okay. <laughs> Suddenly sounded like a... All right. Let's focus on verse 13. He said, here's one of the focus areas. Here's one of the things you need to pray about. I want you to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
make this an area of prayer for your life. Pray against temptation. And pray against falling in to the evil one. So how can you overcome temptation? Jesus said, pray, lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. Now, if you meditate on that one line, a lot of questions come up. First, he's saying, lead us not into temptation. I'm praying to the Father. Father, please do not lead me into temptation. Now, that seems a little wrong. Because we just read in James 1.13, God is, cannot be tempted, neither does he tempt anyone. So God is not going to tempt me, so why do I pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation? So the first thing we must understand is that the correct way to understand it is, I must pray, God, do not permit me in those situations where I am being tempted. Lead us not into temptation. Pray like that. Matthew 26 and verse 41, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, the disciples of Jesus are sitting through their 1030 service, trying barely to keep awake. And Jesus says, you know, pray, I'm going to go and pray. But they're just barely trying to keep awake. He comes back and he says, what could you not even watch with, listen to the sermon for one hour? And then he makes this statement. He says this, he says, watch and pray that you do not enter into See, you don't even want to get into that place where there is temptation. In order not even to get into that place, what must you do? You must watch and pray. Be alert. So sometimes I ask myself this question, if I were the devil, what would I do to me? If I were the devil, how would I attack me? So I'm here in this moment, this time, this place. I have all these things going on around my life. If I was Satan, how would I attack Ashish? What would be my strategy be if I want to knock him out? So it's sometimes it's good to think like the devil. <laughs> sometimes, in this case, think like the devil. Yeah, so you go out and tell pastor told us, think like the devil. <laughs> yeah. In this case, if I were the devil, what would I do to knock that person off? Why? That's part of my watching. I want to be alert. Okay. If Satan is here, I know that this is my area of weakness. I know he's going to come right at this point. And sure enough, I can tell you, he does. That's being watchful. Nothing wrong. And then he says, pray. Watch and pray. That you don't even get into that place of temptation. Do not lead me into temptation. Now, I'm going to shock your understanding and probably contradict everything I said just now with these statements. While we are to pray that way, lead me not into temptation, there are times when God will. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 is a very intriguing verse because the Bible says, now Jesus is ready for ministry. He's about to be launched into ministry. And it says, but Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And that's like it's just contradicting what everything I told you just now. Because it's saying that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness and we are supposed to pray father do not allow me to get into those places of temptation pray like that but now it's saying here the holy spirit led jesus into the wilderness for what reason to be tested or tempted not by god but by the devil 
And you and I understand that unless we have our faith tested and tried, we are never going to develop endurance because James 1, 2, the testing of your faith develops endurance. And endurance produces character. So understand that there may be times in our lives that God allows you to be in your, what do you call it, a wilderness location in order to be tempted, in order to be tested. What's the objective? He's allowing you there, not so that you yield to that temptation. Oh, God directed me here, so therefore it must be okay. No. So Jesus didn't say, the Spirit brought me here. So maybe this thought about making the stones into bread must be from God. No. The Holy Spirit did lead him into the wilderness. Not to yield to the temptation, but to have victory over the temptation. And private victory gives you public ministry. Amen? The reason God allows you to get into those situations where you have to battle against temptation is in order for you to experience private victories, personal victories. Because this is what true Christian ministry is. True Christian ministry is a public display of what has happened in private. True Christian ministry is an overflow of just what, is, what you are experiencing with God. That God is giving you a personal victory, so now you are qualified to administer it to people in public. So why did Jesus go into the wilderness? He could have a private victory. So today he could stand up and Hebrews 2 and verse 18 says, Seeing that he has been tempted in all points like as we are, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Why? He had his personal victory. Today he stands for public ministry. Any one of us can go to him and say, God, give me help. He's able to help you. So prayer is so important. We pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Watch and pray that you don't even enter into those places of temptation. But there may be times in life when God brings you in a circumstance and like you are being face to face, you're facing temptation. It's, you're there not because He wants you down. You're there because He wants you to gain a private victory so that that private victory can become the basis for your public ministry. Amen. And this is why I like to pray in tongues. I encourage everybody to pray in tongues a lot because, you know, in your natural mind, and as much as you try to think like the devil, you can't figure out every scheme and strategy that he's up to. But when you pray in tongues, when you pray in the Spirit, the Bible says the Holy Spirit knows all things. And as you pray in tongues, Romans 8.26 says, He takes a hold of us together with us against our weaknesses. Amen. So part of praying in tongues, Ephesians 6.18, Paul says, War, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Always, you watch and pray in tongues. Watch and pray in the Spirit. That's your safeguard. Let me quickly touch on number two. The second challenge to our life of purity is the pressure to conform. Whether you're in your school, whether you're in your college, whether you're in your workplace, there is always this peer pressure, as we call it, the pressure to conform. You know, you must be like the rest of us. All of us use, you know, bad words, filthy words, so you must also use. If you don't use it, you're the ugly duckling. So there is intense pressure to conform, whether you're in school, you're in college, or even the workplace. In the workplace, all of us, you know, we fudge our reports. So you also must do it. And that is a great challenge for a life of purity, the pressure to conform. I want to just address this with one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to 18. God says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Meaning, don't get yoked to them in the same things that they're doing. 
I know we always use it in the context of marriage, but God just, it just applies to every area of life. Don't get yoked with an unbeliever. Don't become a partner to their way of doing things, to their way of thinking. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what agreement has light with darkness or God with Belial? For you are the children of God. And God says, come out from among them. Be separate. Do not touch the unclean thing and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So God's giving us a very clear mandate for non-conformance. See, those who conform do not make a difference, but it's the one person who refuses to conform who will make a difference. And I dare you to be different. In your school, in your college, in your place of work, whatever it is, when you face the pressure to conform, to do what is wrong, you say, no, God said, come out, be different. And I'll dare to stand up because then God will say, I am your father, you are my son, you are my daughter. Amen? Or rather, be different and receive the accolades of heaven than the praises of man. You dare to be different. What challenges our life of purity? It's temptation and, and this desire to conform and, and yield to it. I want to call the worship team up at this point and I want us to watch a short video. It's called The Black Hole. It talks about, it's a very short video, but it leaves a lasting impression on the dire consequences of yielding to temptation. And right after that, I've requested our worship team to, to unearth uh, and sing for us a very ancient hymn, a very old hymn. It's called Yield Not to Temptation, but the lyrics are so powerful. I want us to sing it together, and maybe you'll sing it throughout the week. It's such a great, beautiful hymn. We're going to sing it. But let's watch this video first. Then we're going to sing this hymn. And I'll come back and finish the eternal gospel that we are preaching. I just want to quickly get ready to close here. But just um, talking to us about the value of purity. You know, why, why is purity so good? Why is it so important? And then we'll just close. Just, I just want to just present to us three things here. And worship team, you could just be here. And, um, and then we'll get ready to close. Now, purity attracts God. God is attracted. He's drawn to people of purity. Psalm 4 and verse 3 says, Know this, that God has set apart him who is godly for himself. Meaning God has marked this person out and says, Man, that's my treasure. See, it attracts God. God is drawn to your life when you choose to live this life of purity and walk in purity before God. Secondly, it gives you the power to influence lives. When you and I walk in purity, we have the power to influence those around us. Light always dispels darkness. In John chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 says, In him was life, for the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and darkness does not overpower it. You know, you are the light of the world. And when you walk as light, you expel darkness. Light always overpowers darkness. Amen. And I've shared this testimony with you many times. And when I was a student, this was in Cleveland, Ohio. I was doing my engineering there. And I chose to become a roommate with a guy who was not a Christian at that time. And uh, I told him, I'll be a roommate. And he was shocked. He's like, you are going to be my roommate? He said, yeah. And he gave me his warning. At the moment I got into his pickup truck, he turned the music on. I was like, I said, do you like to listen to that kind of music? I said, no, I don't, but I'll still be a roommate. <laughs> then he said, you know, I bring girls to the home. Uh, do you bring girls? I said, no, I don't bring girls. But he said, I'll bring girls. Is it okay with you? I said, you know, it's up to you. I'll be a roommate. And, you know, so he kind of gave me 
our housemate, Amy is correct to me, housemate, we sit in the same house. He had his room, I had my room, but the rest of the area was the same. So, uh, housemate. So I moved in with this guy, spent about a year and a half, two years staying with him while I was studying. And now in the beginning when we went grocery shopping, a six pack of beer was always on the list. He'd always pick it up, part of our grocery list. And I didn't really preach hard to him, tell him you must repent, fire and brimstone will fall, nothing. I just believed in the power of the life that's inside me. That this life in me is the light of the world. And when this light shines, it will dispel darkness. And gradually in that two-year, one-and-a-half-year, two-year period of just us living together, we used to grocery shop together, have break, dinner, you know, have meals together, whatever. He, on his own, you know, one, two times he brought some girls, but then he stopped bringing girls. On his own, he changed his whole music set. He took away all his heavy metal, uh, fiery music, got rid of it, and he, you know, he brought in some Christian kind of music, Petra and others are listening to that. He started being very careful with his words, changing his own. Now, he started reading the Bible. He couldn't understand a lot of things, but he'd ask me, you know, what does this mean? What does this mean? Explain. Started going to church on his own. Slowly, even the six-pack of beer stopped. And I, the day he came to me, he said, like, you know, I've decided I'm not going to buy beer anymore. I'm changing. And I, in that year and a half, two years of just, just being in the same house, the life of God changed him. Purity gives you the power to influence. Now, you know, I left and he left. He went to Arizona. And we've lost touch, but I know what the power of purity, the power of the life of God can do. Amen? Last point is this. You know, a life of purity creates memories. A couple of weeks ago, I was just coming out of our office in Antinagar. I came out of the office, just crossed the street in front, went to the other side, going to the car, and I saw this guy on a scooter. He just went past by, he went up, he made a U-turn and he came back to me. And I was, like, I was kind of just on the edge of the road. He was in the middle of the road. He came back and he said, uh, do you teach in Baldwin School? And I said, no, 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 I don't teach. I pointed to the signboard that says New Creation. I said, I work for that company there. He said, no, 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 but uh, you used to come to Baldwin School and teach the Bible, right? And I suddenly my mind said, wow, we're talking about 20 years or more ago. You know, like, okay, quickly I had a shift, you know. I had a shift from the present, at the present, and I had to go back 20 years when I was a student here in Bishop Gordon Boys School, my 8th standard to 10th, 12th standard. In those days, during lunch, I, was, I used to preach in my own school. And during lunch break, I used to go to Baldwin's and I used to go to cathedrals and preach there. So he's like suddenly going, traveling back in town. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I remember I used to come and preach in Baldwin School. He said, yeah, I used to listen to you. I'm like, wow. You know, I was... In a state of shock, not knowing what to say, suddenly this all is happening. And my reaction was, wow, you've got a good memory, you know. And I, was looked, I looked at him, he had rings on every finger, he has thread on all his hands, and, and you know, kind of, I can't recognize him. And uh, so I realized he may be not, maybe he's not a Christian, you know, the way he's looking and all, and he's in the middle of the street, we're having this conversation, I don't want to keep it too long. And so I just casually asked him, so what do you do, what do you do? And he says, you know, I run the store here, everything, and then we leave, you know, it's the middle of the door, we can't have a conversation, leave, so fine. But at that moment, I'm just saying, God, what are you telling me? I mean, this is so strange. Why would something like this happen? Now, I didn't hear the heavens open and a voice from heaven or anything. But I just felt the Lord saying, you know, some people leave a legacy in buildings, big organizations. But you are creating memories. You are creating memories. 
I had that encouraged me. You know, I may not be building big buildings and, and, and doing all this stuff, but you're creating memories. Not all of us sitting here will have the privilege of doing these big things. But every day, you are creating memories. And the Bible says in Proverbs 10 and verse 8, the memory of the just is blessed. A life of purity will leave a lasting memory. I probably shared about my roommate. This was my actual roommate in engineering college. We were roommates together for three years, from second year to fourth year of engineering college. And we were two different, totally opposite poles. You know, I was the guy who was preaching and, you know, Bible studying and praying for revival in Manipal and turning the place upside down, all that kind of stuff. This was aside from our studies in sports. And he was the guy who was like, he won the smoking competition in college. And like, we were like totally opposite. But we were so happy with each other to be roommates. Three years. Now, his life didn't change at the end of it at that time. I left and I went to the United States to do my graduate studies. And I think in a year later, he also came. He went somewhere to Northeast. I think he was in Boston. I was in Ohio at that time. And one late, one evening, late in the evening, I get a call. And uh, it's from this guy. He says, I says, you know, do you remember me? And I said, oh, yeah. What are you doing? Where you are? And we had that initial introduction, got to know what each other's doing. Then he said, I says, I called to tell you one thing. Your life still speaks to me. I was like. God, this guy would go to that extent to find my number. Now, we've lost touch since we graduated from college. He'd go there to find my number just to call me and say, you know, your life still speaks to me. A life of purity creates lasting memories. Amen? Let's rise to our feet as we close. This morning, will you say, God, I'm willing to battle for purity in my life. Some of us may be facing struggles in our mind with thoughts, imaginations, reasonings that we know are not right. It's a battle that all of us face. But this morning, you can ask the Savior to help you. You know, I just felt like giving an altar call, meaning just come forward to pray and get some help. The Bible says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of needs. So we're going to take some time. I know it's well past our closing time. But let's just do this right. Let's give people an opportunity just to wait upon the Lord. Ask the Savior to help them. So they could overcome whatever temptation, whatever struggle they're facing in their battle for purity. All of us go through it. The Bible says, there is no temptation taken you but what is common to man. Hey, everybody goes through this. But God is faithful. Who in the temptation will make a way of escape. There is a place of safety in the middle of every temptation that you can step into. Not so that he will cut short your temptation, but so that you may be able to endure it. Meaning, go through the complete temptation and come out safe this morning would you step into that way of escape would you step into that place of safety so that you can go through it and come out standing because you know there's a God who's faithful always open up this altar right now if you need just to come and wait upon the Lord and say God I want to wait upon you I want to, I want to receive strength 
I want to step into this place of safety. It doesn't matter who you are, man, woman, boy, girl, young or old. We all face temptations. We all face struggles. Let's just take this time to wait upon God and draw His strength. As the worship team sings. Ask the Savior to help you. Let's just come on forward. Let's ask the Savior to help us this morning. Let's wait upon the Lord. Father, we just wait upon you. Father, we pray that you'll raise up a generation of people here, God, of people who know how to contend for purity. That though the battle may be long, and though the battle may be hard, and though the battle may be intense, yet God, without wavering, Lord, we will contend for purity in thought, in word, in speech, in action, in every area of our lives. And God, because of your enabling power, because of your strength, we will come through as a people who've been tried, tested, and now we can come forth as gold. As people whose lives will so forth your praise. The beauty of your holiness in our lives. We thank you, God, that you aid us, you assist us, and you strengthen us, oh God. Thank you for victory in each of our lives. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. Let's close. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. Lift up His confidence on you and give you His peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.